So good morning and welcome to the Anchorage Unitarian Universalist Fellowship's weekly forum for June 11th, 2023. I'm John McKay. I'll be your moderator this morning. And in a few minutes, we'll hear about library books under fire from our speaker, Eric Strochane, who's joining us from Pittsburgh. Um, I'm going to uh, start by lighting our candle, which we do every week representing the light of reason, the warmth of community, and the flame of hope. And we want to acknowledge as we gather this morning that we do this in the, in the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people, who for more than a thousand years have been and continue to be stewards of this land. We regret the system of colonialism that continues to oppress <laughs> the Denina and other indigenous people. And we want to work toward its dismantlement. It's with gratefulness and with respect that we, that we recognize the contributions and the innovations and the contemporary perspectives of the Upper Cook Inlet Denina people. Um, we gather as, as we uh, do each week, uh, now sometimes in person as well as on, on Zoom, but uh, take an offering each week. And we wanna remind you that you can go to the donate button while we're online. Um, and uh, our, our half portion recipient, uh, we donate half of the uh, proceeds each month to a different uh, group or organization that's providing important services to build justice in our community. Uh, as the nation celebrates Pride Month, uh, we are, our half portion recipient for this month is Identity. Um, Identity was founded in 1977, so for over 45 years, its mission has remained the same, to provide programs and to advance this uh, community through advocacy. of full spectrum health and they're now bringing health care under its umbrella um it's a pre preeminent uh, lesbian gay bisexual transgender queer intersex asexual two-spirit and gender expensive medical care provider in alaska um so that's more you can find out about on their website and uh so thank you if you have uh, donated we're grateful for your thoughtful and generous gifts and commit to using them uh both in the fellowship and in the wider community our speaker next week, um, next Sunday, June 18th, will be back in the building in person as well as on Zoom to welcome the two co-chairs of Alaska House of Representatives Freshman Caucus, uh, Democratic Representative Andrew Gray and Republican Representative Justin Ruffridge. They'll give us uh, their reflections on the first session um, in Juneau. I'm told there'll be childcare available uh, during the forum. And of course, for those of you who can't make it in person, you'll be able to attend on Zoom next Sunday and every Sunday. Our speaker the following week uh, at our Zoom only forum, which is because it's the, the uh, fourth Sunday, right? Um, will be Anchorage Municipal Ombudsman, Daryl Hess uh, with uh, Heather Flynn moderating. And the following Sunday, we'll be hearing from uh, back in the building with uh, uh, Scott Kendall, uh, the attorney. So um, this Sunday, we're very pleased to have this uh, Sunday afternoon where you are, Eric, but uh, uh, to welcome Eric Strochane. 
Eric uh, has 20 years of experience working in public, special, and academic libraries. He's currently uh, provides American, Libra uh, American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom challenge support, database management, and assistance with publications as part of their effort to combat censorship and defend freedom to read. Um, Eric has uh, been is the, the news editor, uh, I hope this is still current, for the J Journal of Intellectual Freedom and Privacy. Uh, he curates a weekly news compilation for the ALA's Intellectual Freedom blog and is a former president of the Mountains, Mountain Plains Library Association, um, which not being a professional librarian, I, uh, uh, I wasn't quite sure where Mountain Plains was, but I see it's quite a large, takes up the, most of the western half of the United States, I think. And uh, he holds a master's degree in library science from Indiana University of Bloomington and a master's in English uh, from the University of Buffalo, as well as B.A., from uh, Pennsylvania State University and in his life beyond the library walls, Eric's an electronic musician, a mountain biker, kayaker, hiker, dog lover, and yogi. This morning he's coming to us wearing that librarian hat. So thank you very much for joining us, Eric. Uh, it's all yours. Uh, thank you so much for the, the warm welcome, John. And I am very happy to be joining you all today um, from very far afield. I am going to get the screen share going here. All right. Hopefully you are now seeing my slides. Um, as John mentioned, my name is Eric. I have two decades of experience working in public, special, and academic libraries. And in doing so, I get to speak on occasion with lovely and amazing people like yourselves about issues with bearing on intellectual freedom. I'm so very grateful to have been invited to speak with you today and for this opportunity to connect and discuss with you. Um, Unitarian Universalists are near and dear to my heart. Uh, there we go. Oh, all right, technical issues. All right, before we go too deep, I think it's useful to cover some very basic things like just what is a library anyway? What role do they play in society? And how are they even possible? And these are really simple questions, I know, but they're also ones that almost invariably receive vastly oversimplified answers. Virtually everyone's first thought when they hear the word library is books, right? And that makes sense. The word comes from the Latin librarius, meaning books. <laughs> so I get it. But public libraries are so much more than that, and they always have been. The earliest Carnegie libraries included music halls, basketball courts, swimming pools, natural history museums, art galleries. And yes, I appreciate Andrew Carnegie had something of a checkered past, but that's not what we're here to discuss at this time. All right, so libraries are community hubs. Today, they're places where anyone can go for free internet access, to conduct research or a job search, to take classes, to do yoga, to enroll in social services, to attend concerts, hear speeches, interact with authors, and experience cultural events. People go to libraries to plan and incubate businesses, to hold or join public meetings, and to access creative tools in order to produce films, music, and art. Libraries are places where you can apply for college, get your GED, or just do your homework. They promote literacy for all of all kinds, including early, adult, and digital. And they host free lunch programs during the summer in some areas. And yes, they have books and movies and sound recordings 
for all ages on all topics and representing all points of view. They do all that and more without direct charge, operating primarily through public funding, staffed by trained professionals who serve everyone equitably, facilitating their personal and research interests courteously and confidentially with competence and without judgment. Public libraries are arguably the last place in American society that are truly cross-sectional, where people go regardless of economic strata, nationality, ethnicity, race, religion, creed, age, political affiliation, gender identity, or sexuality. In other words, libraries are a public good. Cool. So how did we get here? As you likely suspect, there are some ethical underpinnings, which are articulated in important sounding documents like the Library Bill of Rights, the Freedom to Read Statement, and the Library Code of Ethics. I am not going to read those to you today because that would be boring, and I know you're capable of finding things like that online and reading them yourself. But here is the gist of library ethics. Libraries provide free and open access to the broadest possible range of ideas, stories, and voices. Libraries oppose censorship of all kinds. Through their service, individuals can explore complex topics from a variety of angles. They can learn, research, draw their own conclusions, form their own opinions, own their critical thinking skills, and develop understanding of the perspectives of those with different backgrounds and lived experiences from themselves, which opens the doors to compassionate conversation. These things are all essential to democratic society. The marketplace of ideas, it's your library. So those important sounding documents, which you can find at these websites, um, codified existing thought and practice. And they did so at particularly fraught moments in our nation's history. You can probably think of some key historic events taking place around 1939 and 1953. You likely recognize that when the Library Bill of Rights was adopted, for example, fascism was on the rise, Nazi book burnings had taken place, and World War II was on the brink of breaking out. Perhaps lesser known was that the first Nazi book burning took place on May 6, 1933 when a group of students from the German Student Union, who were accompanied by a brass band, because you, know, you need fanfare for something like this, broke into the Institute for Sex Research to take propagandistically sanctioned action against its un-German spirit by burning roughly 20,000 volumes comprising its library and archives. The Institute was singled out because it sought to understand and educate on the variety of human sexual and gender diversity, and was at the forefront of studying human sexuality, including homosexuality, intersex, and transgender issues. Perhaps also worth noting is that the Nazis were mm, a wee bit racist. All right, so that was going on in 39. In 1953, um, we have the freedom to read statements adoption. This was smack dab in the middle of the McCarthy era. In April of 1953, President Eisenhower issued Executive Order 10450. This barred those who were gay or lesbian from federal employment. So there's 
kind of a, a through thread there. Um, and librarians responded to these crises in an almost immunological manner. And these were crises that um, not only had bearing on sexuality and gender identity, but were, you know, much broader um, political and social issues than, than that. And they also, of course, entailed censorship. And libraries responded by codifying the principle of facilitating free intellectual pursuit and the opposition to censorship at the very heart of the work that they do. Nice. All right. So what's the American Library Association? And what is the Office for Intellectual Freedom, where I work? ALA is a 150-year-old nonpartisan professional organization serving a membership of academic, school, public, aspiring, and retired librarians and trustees. It is not defined by the views of any one individual, but rather by its ongoing commitment to supporting the work librarians do to strengthen the communities they serve. The Office for Intellectual Freedom was established in 1967. It implements ALA policies concerning intellectual freedom and the free access to libraries and library materials. The goal of the office is to educate librarians and the general public about the nature and importance of intellectual freedom in libraries. OIF provides confidential support to anyone facing efforts to censor materials or services at a public institution in the US. As a non-governmental nonprofit, our records are confidential and not subject to revelation through FOIA or FOIL requests. Like libraries, we never charge for our services and we work to uphold democratic norms. All right, but what am I talking about when I talk about intellectual freedom? That's a really good question. We define that as the right of every individual to seek and receive information from all points of view without restriction. Intellectual freedom provides for free access to all expressions of ideas through which any and all sides of a question, cause, or movement may be explained. All right. Now, because I don't believe it's well understood, I also want to take a brief moment to talk about how library materials are selected in the first place, how all of those books and movies and sound recordings and everything else actually winds up in the library. Or another way of framing it, there are lots of alpacas in the world after all. How do we make informed decisions about the ones we collect and provide access to? As mentioned earlier, libraries have policies guiding material selection. Schools and libraries have missions that the collection serves to support. It's true that selection is the art of welcoming voices, stories, and ideas into the library collection, but it's also very much a science. Librarians use a process that is data-driven. They look at circulation performance of different topics and genres for different age ranges to assess what's overperforming, what's underperforming, what areas need bolstering, what can be scaled back. They look at average age of materials in each section and subject area to assess what needs a refresh. They look at national trends for awareness of how interest may shift, and they do demographic analyses of their service area population to make sure that the collection corresponds to it and represents and meets the needs of those they're serving. Now, of course, not every book is right for every reader, but every reader gets to make their own choices about what they do and do not read. 
and librarians are there to help them locate what they're looking for. Librarians also consult professional reviews and recommendations when they're doing this work, and they do this in a way that's tailored to the developmental level that they're serving. They select material that receives notable awards and accolades that is of popular interest or things on bestseller lists. In schools, they consult with educators to support classes taught and subjects teachers send kids to the library to research. They also make sure that AP courses are properly supported by the collection. So trade publications that we turn to for reviews include things like Booklist, the New York Times Book Review, Publishers Weekly, Shelf Awareness, the Bulletin for the Center for Children's Books, Kirkus, Library Journal, School Library Journal, Yalsa Best Books for Young Adults, and We Need Diverse Books. So its selection is the process of looking for reasons to add voices, stories, and ideas. What's censorship? How do we define that within the context of library service? Censorship is any abridgment of intellectual freedom. It's removing or restricting access to a book or other resource based on the viewpoints expressed in the work. It's worth noting that such an act is prohibited by the First Amendment for any government operated or publicly funded library or school. Now, is there speech that isn't protected by the First Amendment? Yes, there are actually five kinds of speech that aren't. Those are obscenity, child pornography, defamation, true threats and fighting words, which makes me think of Yosemite Sam whenever I say it, uh, and false advertising. Additionally, there is another category of expression which is protected for adults, but not for those under the age of 17, and that is speech which is harmful or obscene as to minors. Now, this is a, a term that's defined in statute and through case law, and we'll delve into that in a bit. But before going on, more definition. What's a challenge? A challenge is a formal written objection to a book, program, or display at a library. It's important to recognize that a challenge is not fundamentally a bad thing. It's a form of constitutionally protected speech as well, and it's a means of petitioning government for redress. And this is why challenges are taken very seriously by librarians and why there are policies and procedures in place for dealing with them equitably and objectively. The process of reevaluating this material is called reconsideration. Now, this is a strange and somewhat antiquated term, but here's the origin of it. Reconsideration is the process undertaken by staff and administrators to reconsider the decision that was made when a title was added to the library collection. And this is done in response to a challenge. The next three terms are all forms of censorship. A restriction on access, such as requiring parental permission, having to request a book by title from the guidance counselor's office, or placing prejudicial labels on books, are all one form of censorship that can result from the reconsideration process, or in some cases, from failure to follow it. Relocation is moving a book from where it was originally cataloged and shelved to another section of the library or in a school district to an upper grade level. This makes it less accessible and it makes it at times, um, and times when we'd be concerned about it from a constitutional standpoint, less accessible to those it was written and published to serve so that those who are 
coming to the library to find, say, a children's book, if I have to go to the adult section to find it, um, that's a problem. Finally, a ban is the removal of an item from the library resulting from a request for reconsideration. Or again, in some cases, from a failure to follow the reconsideration process. The collection development policy for a library is just the general overarching term that we use for all of the library's policies governing the selection, deselection, and reconsideration of materials. These policies are extremely important as a board's failure to follow its own policies and procedures is often cited by courts as evidence of unconstitutional motivation in censorship cases. It is also worth pointing out um, that recently groups like Liberty Council, Independence Law Center, and Moms for Liberty have worked with censorship embracing boards to craft policies that are themselves unconstitutional. And this is no good for anyone. All right, so why am I here? What's censorship been like lately? <laughs> I've got some really fascinating charts and figures to regale you with. Um, sorry. In other words, I'm about to share some numbers and charts containing a bunch of similar looking squiggly lines um, and that have every chance of boring you to tears. I do have my reasons for doing so. The data is significant as it quantitatively supports what I felt and anecdotally understood to be true as I've worked in libraries, journalism, and the intellectual freedom space. Um, before I dig in, I do want to share a metaphor and true story. When I asked my stepson if he knew what a metaphor was, he said, yes, that's something with legs. And while I could not refute that, that's not exactly where I want to go here. Um, what I do want to share as a metaphor is that efforts to censor school and library materials are a barometer or a health indicator for the state of a democracy. The data we're going to delve into now indicates that things are not okay. A healthy democracy requires free and open access to a panoply of ideas, expressions, and views in order for people to form their own opinions, cultivate critical thinking and literacy skills, and make informed decisions. That includes the opportunity to contest ideas and stories you don't agree with. Um, and that takes place essentially as the baseline in the charts I'll share with you in a moment. What's caused for concern is significant deviation from that baseline, indicating that there are organized efforts to suppress certain views and ideas in order to prescribe what is orthodox. And I don't want to oversimplify it. These challenges and like these efforts to ban books are just one part of a much more encompassing landscape. And there are a lot of forces at play contributing to and enabling what we're seeing, many of which were exacerbated during the pandemic such as the siloed ways in which most people consume the news, the search bubbles and social media echo chambers that serve to reinforce bias, and popular platforms documented and algorithmic pushes towards extremist content and the acceptance of conspiratorial thinking. We are soaking in the sort of disinformation economy that is an authoritarian propagandist's fever dream. What does that look like as a line chart? Well, it looks like this. So, hmm, squiggly lines. Okay, so depicted here in blue, the bottom line is the, the cases, the number of instances of attempts to censor materials and services 
at public schools and libraries that have been documented by the Office for Intellectual Freedom. An important thing to appreciate, uh, 350 is basically the baseline number that I mentioned. That's kind of like, we're at 350, then that's just kind of healthy level of dissent and conversation. Um, so in that baseline consists of challenges from across the political spectrum to all manner of materials. And that baseline persists today. We still see all of that activity going on, but now there is something else happening too that's layered on top of it and which we'll explore in more detail in a moment. Last year, we hit a record shattering 1,269 total cases of attempts to censor materials or services at schools and libraries in the US. More extraordinary than the uptick in the number of challenges, however, was the uptick in the number of titles challenged. So why are these lines so dramatically different? Before 2021, the most challenged title in a given year would rack up an average of eight challenges. That's E-I-G-H-T, five plus three, eight. Um, if that were, say, Captain Underpants. Captain Underpants would be one unique title. There's only one Captain Underpants, and that's what's represented by the middle kind of salmon-colored line. Within the eight separate institutions where it was challenged are what's documented on that upper line, the kind of gray-black one. Since before 2021, it was quite uncommon for a book to be targeted more than once in a year. The difference between these two lines was historically negligible, and so too was the difference between the number of challenge incidents and the number of overall titles challenged. So let's take a closer look at what started happening recently. For decades, for as long as the Office for Intellectual Freedom tracked data, requests for reconsideration generally came in one title at a time, which is what you'd expect. A person would read a book, they'd find it objectionable on some ground. They'd say, hey, this disturbed me. I strongly feel this doesn't belong or just anyone might read it. Prior to 2021, multi-title challenges were rare. And when they did occur, they came nowhere near today's extreme. In fact, the average number of titles challenged per case, going back you know, in the decades before 2021, was one. In 2022, the average numbers of titles included in a case of attempted censorship was seven. In September of 2021 is where we really started to see this massive uptick in reconsideration requests that were being made for lengthy lists of titles. And these lists were being found online instead of on the library shelf. This activity has been sustained since then. In fact, it's been increasing. Where do these lists come from? Most can be traced to sites like booklooks.org, um, which are then shared through Facebook groups like Mary in the Library. Others were generated by hard right politicians like Texas State Rep Matt Krause and former Oklahoma Attorney General John O'Connor. What is Booklooks? Booklooks is a pro-censorship site that primarily targets books with LGBTQIA representation and it was created by a founding member of Moms for Liberty. It has been cloned and repackaged under many guises to give it more of a local feel, um, but it's moms all the way down until it isn't. Book looks and resources like it 
are utilized by organizations like Moms for Liberty, No Left Turn, Mass Resistance, some conservative religious groups and Christian nationalist groups, and also by some ostensibly well-intentioned individuals who've simply fallen prey to the rhetorical pitfalls of disinformation sources that grew so much more insidiously alluring during the pandemic. But back to the numbers. There were 331 multi-title challenges nationwide in 2022. There were a lot of years before then when there weren't any at all. Um, these cases accounted for 90% of the overall titles that were challenged last year. One final glimpse at Squidly Line, um, because by gum, Alaska, this is your line and these are your squiggles. Um, from this, we see that Alaska has a very similar trend. There's a bit more market variance over time, but just appreciate this comes with a smaller sample size. You know, a change of two looks rather dramatic if you're dealing with an average of five. But just like at the national level, this spike in Alaska has been driven by multi-title challenges. Looking at kind of a state-to-state -state censorship heat map, this is how challenge distribution broke down last year. Uh, if you go to this map online, the website's kind of in the upper right there, um, you can drill down and see a bit more information as you hover over each state. This includes the number of challenges and the number of titles challenged by state, as well as the most frequently targeted title there, if and when applicable. To shift to another valence we're seeing this activity on, there are some notable similarities between that map and the heat map um, of legislation adversarial to libraries and schools. I'm not going to delve into the legislative side too deeply, but just some broad strokes about what this has looked like lately. We've seen bills that would um, embrace curriculum censorship, so bans on divisive concepts, critical race theory, and don't say gay laws. We've seen parents' bill of rights acts, uh, the establishment of parental and political oversight boards, targeted regulation of what's classified as sexually explicit material in public libraries and in bookstores, criminalizing the provision of access to books in schools and libraries, attacks on library funding mechanisms, targeted regulation of research databases, and compelled rating systems by private entities as a vehicle for state restriction. And just as we have kind of, you know, looking over time, it's skyrocketed uh, in terms of the, the challenges that we've seen. Also, the amount of adversarial legislation that's been introduced has also been increasing exponentially. Back to the books. Which titles are being targeted? Well, these 13 topped the charts in 2022. ALA does an annual list of the 10 most frequently challenged. Last year, there was a four-way tie for 10. Now, if you're not familiar with these books, a glance at their titles and covers reveals a certain thread running through them. Um, the titles being targeted en masse prominently feature representation of those who identify as LGBTQIA+, and those who are Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and people of color. Um, also, just like a couple more numbers, as I said, you know, before 2021, the average number of challenges received by the most challenged title was eight. Last year, the most challenged title received 151 challenges. 
and we documented 144 different titles that received nine or more challenges to them. In other words, they would have exceeded that average mark um, of the preceding decade. So surprising no one as LGBTQIA plus material is what's being targeted um, and material with uh, addressing race and social justice is what's being targeted. The, the groups who are working to attempt to limit access to these titles, who are disparaging their authors, who are denigrating library and education professionals, and who are taking every effort possible to undermine trust in public schools and libraries are all ones which have been identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center as anti-government extremist organizations and anti-LGBTQ hate groups. Prominent examples also include um, No Left Turn, Purple for Parents, Mass Resistance, Liberty Council, uh, Moms for Liberty, who this slide featured. Um, further evidence of this shows up when you look at the objections written on the request for reconsideration form that are submitted when these materials are challenged. Uh, note, these are categories we use internally just to collocate justifications. And you'll also note that uh, they don't add up to 100% because a complainant can provide more than one reason when they fill out a reconsideration form. I think it's also interesting to note that sexually explicit is has been used to target titles simply because they have LGBTQIA plus representation. Um, and it's also been used as the only reason to challenge books on topics of social justice and racism. So apparently, even in these dark times, some would-be censors are reluctant to appear prejudiced. However, the light shines through when picture books like Entango Makes Three are painted as being pornographic, or when drama by Raina Telgemeier is targeted for being sexually explicit, when the most graphic thing depicted is a kiss between two male characters. So let's take a moment to acknowledge that these aren't just efforts to censor materials, and narrow the range of voices, stories, and ideas that youth have access to. They're also flagrantly discriminatory ones. I also want to take a moment to consider the message sent to youth when the stories they see themselves and their families in are challenged and censored. Reflect on how it would feel for your voice to be silent, for it to be forbidden, um, and characterized as dangerous for your classmates to learn about people who feel, love, and look the way you do. Um, this was a recent article from School Library Journal that specifically references two conferences I presented at earlier this year. Uh, at one, there was a social media campaign urging people to contact their local school boards and demand that any librarians slated to go to the conference be denied the right to do so. Uh, some school librarians who were on the online program enlisted as presenting were targeted by name. Uh, a couple weeks later at the Texas Library Association conference, I was among the presenters who was asked to place a slide at the beginning of my presentation, which read, due to the charged nature of this topic, we ask that you refrain from capturing and sharing photos, videos, or other identifying information from this session in order to ensure the well-being of our speakers and attendees. Now, I just want to be completely clear. This was not to protect the speakers. We were already public and readily associated with the topics we were presenting on. 
This was done to protect the librarians in attendance who could have faced professional and personal risk by association. One thing that is important to recognize is that while what's making headlines are the efforts to restrict the right to read books, what's being targeted is much more encompassing and includes the dignity of everyone who feels kinship with the characters and subjects in the books targeted, as well as the very professionalism and safety of library workers and their families, and even the public good that public education and public libraries do in our communities. These tactics are designed to be intimidating and to create fear, sometimes rising to the level of defamation and terroristic threats. And as a result, these efforts also have a chilling effect that is particularly difficult to document quantitatively. So that's a really scary, dark place. Um, what are some of the ways that the American Library Association pushes back against it? Sure, we provide guidance, statements, best practices, models, and resource guides based on constitutional precepts and informed by case law, because we want libraries not only to serve everyone, but to do so in a manner that is ethical and fiduciarily responsible. We've always done that. Um, and you've got people like myself who provide confidential support to librarians and teachers and administrators in need. What else? Well, we've got the Freedom to Read Foundation. FTRF was established to promote and defend the First Amendment rights of all individuals, to express their ideas without governmental interference, and to read and listen to the ideas of others. It also works to foster libraries as institutions wherein every individual's First Amendment freedoms are fulfilled, and to support the right of libraries to include in their collections and make available any work which they may legally acquire. This is separate from ALA, but it works with ALA and the Office for Intellectual Freedom to litigate cases, such as the ones listed on this slide. Um, Llano County, Texas, on March 30th, 2023, the Federal District Court in Austin issued a preliminary injunction ordering Llano County, Texas government, and the library board to return the books removed from the collection of the LC Public Library. Um, catalog and to refrain from removing any books from the library for the pendency of the lawsuit. Um, these books had been, uh, these were primarily LGBTQIA plus titles that were removed from the collection, not in accord with policy. Now the injunction was issued based on the court's belief that the plaintiffs have a high likelihood of success of prevailing on their First Amendment claim at trial. And uh, earlier this month, FTRF filed an amicus curiae brief with the Fifth Court of Appeals, uh, in this case, which is Lila Green-Little at all of Ilano County at all, um, a lawsuit filed by several citizens of Ilano County. So the plaintiffs argue that the removal of books from the library's collection is based upon a dislike or disapproval of the ideas or topics addressed in the book, and that violates the plaintiff's First Amendment right to access those books in the library. Similarly, earlier this month, FTRF, um, the First Amendment legal defense arm of ALA, also joined a broad coalition of authors, publishers, booksellers, librarians, and readers who filed suit uh, in the United States District Court, Western District Court of Arkansas, the Fayetteville Division, challenging that Arkansas Act 372, a law that would restrict access to books in bookstores and libraries located within the state, 
and in the process violate the First Amendment rights of the state's reading public. Uh, the bill was signed into law by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders on March 30th. It's slated to go into effect on August 1st. Um, going to work to get a preliminary injunction in that case as well, just to stave that off until the wheels of justice can grind through and hopefully find that act unconstitutional. Uh, what else? Oh, there's the Leroy C. Merrick Humanitarian Fund. This was established in 1970 as a special trust in memory of Dr. Leroy C. Merrick, and it's devoted to the support, maintenance, medical care, and welfare of librarians who were denied employment rights or discriminated against on the basis of gender, sexual orientation, race, color, creed, religion, age, disability, or place of national origin, or denied employment rights because of defense of intellectual freedom that is threatened with loss of employment or discharge because of their stand for the cause of intellectual freedom, including promoting uh, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and the freedom of librarians to select items for their collection from all the world's written and recorded information. So this fund um, has really been seeing a lot of use lately. Uh, next up, Unite Against Book Bans. This is an initiative that ALA launched very recently in 2021. It's a partnership with dozens of publishers, professional associations, civil liberties groups, and individuals to help community activists organize and speak out in defense of libraries and the right to read. UABB is nonpartisan and a nonprofit, and it provides extensive resources, including a toolkit, which is available at unitedagainstbookbans.org. Um, finally, I would be remiss if I did not encourage you to report censorship when you come across it. So if something's happening in your neck of the woods, just let us know. We are here to provide confidential support or to connect you with um, fellow community activists in your area to help you navigate challenges and ensure that access to constitutionally protected materials remains available. Oh, and if you are a professional, um, I encourage you to protect yourself and report using a personal network email and phone number. So again, we're a governmental nonprofit. Our records are confidential and non, not subject to FOIA. We will never do anything to put you at risk. I know I breezed through that pretty quickly, but I wanted to leave time at the end for questions. Um, and there's lots of other things I can go through if you like. But at this point, I would like to turn it over to you and whatever you would like to hear more about. And I'm going to open up chat if I can. So, uh, Eric, if you, uh, I think you're probably taking yourself off screen share and uh, we can see you better. And uh, just remind people that Eric has provided his slides that you just saw. So if you want to copy down or get the links or or copy down information, uh, you can. It'll be posted along with the podcast uh, when Ken gets that up, uh, probably later today or, or or in the next day or so. Um, and also take this opportunity to thank Andrea and Bonnie for their support this morning. Uh, it's always really appreciate that. Um, so um, let's, um, as usual, um, uh, if you want to indicate uh, using the. Uh, Automated reaction, at the, if you go to the bottom uh, under reactions, you can click um, 
to raise your hand uh, as Bill has just done, uh, or if you have your camera on and I can watch for your analog hand, we'll do that. So start with uh, start with you, Bill. Greetings. Thank you for joining us this morning. All the boy, what a what a long way to travel via Zoom. <laughs> um, and that great. The uh, question I that occurred to me was uh, the ability of people to self-publish has uh, uh, and 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 the way social media uh, has has changed has an, enabled lots of people to self-publish uh, uh, today, where it used to be that editors would restrict whatever they would publish based on their particular uh, publication and, and uh, you know, their own guidelines. So in a sense, it seems like censorship would have been part of the business structure uh, before where it's less of a, uh, uh, you know, part of the business. Uh, you know, in fact, I, I, I would think that a lot of uh, books are being published um, much, much cheaper. They're much cheaper to publish today. Uh, but uh, also trying to sell things with the shock value uh, that might um, have partially created uh, the surge in, in uh, attempts to, to ban books. Do you think that might have anything to do with the sudden rise of, of books? because of, of that ability to publish apart from having editors not allow it? That's, that's a really intriguing question, Bill. And I also just wanted to like take a moment to recognize the giant sloth in the background behind you there. It's very key. Um, yeah, so like our, our more materials, you know, our, our more attempts to censor materials happening now because um, the materials at libraries might be perhaps less um, regulated or um, there might be less oversight over you know, the industry as we've shifted from kind of mainstream publishing to more um, self-publishing and other models. Is that the, the question? Yeah, okay. So what's- yes. Sorry, I took myself off speaker, so. That's quite all right. I just wanted to make sure that I, I was responding to to the right thing, yeah. So that that's interesting. Um, if you look at uh, the titles that are generally being challenged these days, they aren't ones that have been self-published, as you you know may have suspected. But they are all actually from very fairly prominent publishers. They do they are actually you know undergoing that sort of editorial scrutiny that we expect. Um, most libraries, as they're selecting materials, they do take into account the, um, the credibility of the source, the um, authority of who has produced the material, um, the accuracy of what's presented within it. Um, and so that tends to kind of tip things towards um, better known publishing houses and those who do engage in more rigorous editorial review. Certainly there are materials that are purchased, especially of, of local interest that are self-published or, you know, self-published materials um, that kind of do rise to national attention. Like there have been a number of titles that, that were self-published that like Rupi Carr's works, I think initially, um, where they, you know, 
maybe didn't have a lot of reviews or support behind them, but still became national bestsellers. So those are the sorts that usually wind up in the collection, but that's not by and large what we're seeing targeted. So I don't think that that's a factor. Ah, thank you. The, the, the other issue I was thinking of is you mentioned that uh, bookstores themselves are targeted often. And I'm thinking, you know, those are the physical bookstores, but you've got online book availability now that's just overwhelming. And uh, it, it, if anything, it's made uh, the lives of bookstores difficult uh, because they're competing against uh, uh, online sources that have all the books <laughs> and they're not restricted to a physical space uh, and what they might uh, think could be sold. Plus, uh, so many books are available for like one penny plus postage uh, that, you know, bookstores. So, so I'm wondering, you know, is there any online bookstore censorship that local uh, communities uh, might be able to use to, to keep people from getting books elsewhere? Well, um, what, I, what I didn't delve into is actually more about um, the legal standards for determining if material actually is obscene or harmful as to minors. And those would be the two kind of criminal criminal areas in these existing statute in all 50 states where um, people could actually pursue um, cutting off access to materials. And the, there's been one recent case. In 2022, two books, uh, their, their sellers and their publishers were put on trial on grounds that they that the books were obscene in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And these were gender, queer, and the court of mist and fury. Um, in the process of adjudicating the case, they actually determined that the, the state law under which the sort of you know, this um, judicial challenge was brought was itself unconstitutional. And the books were cleared on all charges of themselves being obscene or harmful as to minors. Um, so there is a one of the, the constitutional or the case law grounding for this was a case called Miller v. California back in 1973. Okay. And that created a three-pronged test to determine what is obscene and then not protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution. And all three prongs have to be met for something to be obscene. And those are whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find the work as a whole appeals to the prurient interest, whether the work depicts or describes in a patently offensive way sexual conduct specifically defined by the applicable state law, and whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. It's, it's a pretty high bar because we have very strong protections for speech in this country. Now, um, another, another Supreme Court case, um, Ginsburg v. New York, uh, kind of, that, that's what established the, the grounds for obscene as to minors or harmful as to minors statutes. And those basically look at the Mueller code, but apply it to an audience of people who are, like they assess it at the age of 17, as opposed to adults. So, um, Eric, you, oh, go ahead. So, yeah, in terms of like 
being able to to curtail access to things like from online or from like actual bookstores like on constitutional grounds those are those are the avenues that they be pursued through and um, essentially because we are in the internet age the sort of community standard is currently generally viewed as sort of applying universally um since you mentioned my sloth my sloth's favorite movie is zootopia <laughs> and in that movie there were some really sexy uh sloths uh working for the uh, department of motor vehicles and you know i'm wondering if any uh um uh, effort i mean we you've mentioned all the books and i'm thinking what if what if a parent wanted to make sure that their junior sloths didn't see those sexy sloths or is there much effort to prevent libraries from sharing movies like that so there there have been um not sloths specifically but um <laughs> there, there have been children's films targeted quite a bit and they um probably to no one's surprise are those that have lgbtqia plus representation in them so if there are if there are queer characters um and it's like screened or made available at a public library. That's the kind of thing that we have seen challenges to. Eric, you mentioned these, these various groups uh, that have been around for a while, but some that have just sprung up and become very active lately. Um, Moms for Liberty, maybe was one of them, uh, a variety of, of, of groups that you, you mentioned. Do you, and the people that you work with, the people that try and, and uh, defend the freedom to read and and, and uh, protect against censorship. Do you have sort of an entree into that world where you get to see the communications that are being sent out and see what their strategies are, see what they're promoting and, and you know, so that if somebody in this community or other communities says, oh, I, I wanna pursue this, I wanna keep this issue alive, I wanna bring this to our local school board and local, do you, do you see a, a game plan or are you just seeing the, the, the same results and consequences that the rest of us do? Yeah, so there's there's definitely a, a playbook that we've seen in action. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're if you're asking about the playbook or if we do kind of opposition research. Um, really? Either one. How do you know what's going on there? Yeah. Um, so like I like we do have people who are looking at social media and just kind of monitoring things on that end, and we generally do see um, things appear on social media first move from social media to public comment sections of board meetings and they uh, during during public comments members of these groups just try to essentially subvert the reconsideration and challenge process that's in place in policy that i mentioned by just kind of attacking board members and the professionalism of librarians and educators for having these materials available at all they do this um in matching outfits uh, because they have merchandise that they sell they do this with signs um you know with like a panel or a brief excerpt from the works and they they just read kind of the most you know what they consider to be the most objectionable like little clips from from these materials and then they uh make kind of broad accusations against the the people responsible they they do that sometimes they'll move to formal reconsideration sometimes they won't it doesn't always like track in ways that you would expect um but they keep this up they keep applying pressure both on social media and in the public comment section of board meetings um 
We see them make personal attacks against teachers, librarians, and board members on their social media accounts. They also go after family members of these people that they find through their social media accounts. And they go after the businesses of family members that they find. So just like basically trying to make life as unpleasant as possible for them. So this has the effect of kind of driving people out of wanting to serve in a voluntary capacity on a library board or a school board, right? And then that opens up avenues for kind of the next phase that we see, which is um, running their own candidates to serve on the board. So those people who are you know, wanting to serve a, a very partisan agenda of silencing certain voices. So that's kind of the next phase. Um, and then we can see um, at times unconstitutional policies introduced or other actions then by the board that um, due to their position as a publicly funded or governmental institution, subject them to legal action. Um, so people can litigate um, when unconstitutional actions are taken by a governmental entity. Right. And um, so we see kind of like that threat happening. And then we also see um, efforts to just kind of like actively defund libraries if they uphold their policies and like preserve access to materials that they can't constitutionally suppress um, based on their viewpoints and ideas. Um, and we saw that happen like in Patmos, Michigan was the most famous, you know, the first case. Um, but there have been a number of others in Huntsville, Texas. We saw a public library be placed under um, private operation and like a, a, a private equity firm was brought in to manage the library. Anyone who had worked at the library was allowed to reapply for their job, but that firm was then expected to like replace the library policies that were making materials um, available there. So that's another tactic that we've seen. Um, and yeah, the that kind of eradication of, in some cases, like the very existence of libraries or in others, this kind of like trust in in the work that they do is part and parcel of of the playbook. Um, I just, that was off the cuff and not well articulated, but that hopefully gets to a bit of what you're looking at. Thanks, um, Christy, uh, Christy Wooler. Thanks. <clears throat> Thank you, Eric. That was phenomenal. Um, and it, it led well, so you're aware of this title that we've been talking about here. So sort of two things. We're not seeing that on the list of the top 20 nationals, but I'm pretty sure that it's in the top 40, maybe, because it uh, it came to our library advisory board and the school board simultaneously almost in one week. So, <clears throat> so we've had a journey with that that you're aware of to some degree. One question I had, and, and one thing that I'm seeing is, um, and wondering if, if you have a chart in your head about this, is that it seems that, um, is it possible that fewer people are actually using libraries and understanding their unique um, role of providing access to all groups and um, a, sort of your opening statement 
that the lack of understanding of the <clears throat> the purpose and history of libraries in this country in other words the the explaining what the function what the true function of a library is might be uh, less understood if less and less people are actually using libraries and kind of involved in uh in in seek out resources there so is library use throughout the country actually diminishing while um people are uh, while the the political um efforts to um, influence what decisions libraries are making is growing is there a kind of um <laughs> up and down um uh, statistic there somewhere that is um such a really good question uh, and just for for the record in in 2022 let's talk about it was the 30th most challenged title so, <laughs> okay <laughs> we're definitely seeing uh, you know a lot of activity around that one in um just before I move on it's just like really really important so kind of part of the dialectic the rhetorical tactics that are being used is to characterize um books as being obscene or harmful as to minors simply because they include LGBTQIA plus representation, simply because they have um, sex education content that is developmentally appropriate, or because they have like any passage at all that is considered to be sexually explicit. And of course, that is just um, categorically untrue that um, any of those materials on those grounds would be um, obscene or harmful as to minors. Now, library use interesting so there's this is this is a complex question i've that i've wrestled with in a few different ways i i was a library manager um shortly before uh becoming full-time at oif so you know of course we saw a huge a huge drop in terms of public use of the building that corresponded with being closed to the public during the pandemic uh and so, yeah, so there was a huge decline in visitors that then took like a while to rebuild the library system that I was in it was pretty slow and conservative in terms of reintroducing different levels of service. Um, but as they did, the the usage started to return more and more and more towards pre-pandemic levels. Now I don't have this is this is not data that I run, so I don't have like the figure of like what it actually is. Um, most recently, but the the place that does is IMLS, the Institute of Museum and Library Services. So that's where you can go to actually look at um, changes in library usage over time. I will say as a caveat that IMLS uh, is like a little old school in their measuring of things. So they kind of do like very traditional um, usage counts, like door count um, and searches and not necessarily a lot of the more kind of contemporary use, like kids coming in to play video games or, you know, online access to like eBooks and like e-circulations and things of that nature. But long, long explanation, I don't think that there has been overall, you know, especially as things have kind of had a chance to reacclimate to, you know, face-to-face mm. -face in public service overall as a nation, I don't think it's declined. Um, the, the, the last numbers that I looked at at a, at a local level, we were, we were very close to pre-pandemic 
times and just kind of kind of rising back towards it. So yeah, there's definitely a, a diminishment, but it's returning. I guess one follow-up question is yeah. of the amount that was an extraordinary chart that you showed, but do you have a notion of how many of those challenges um, were uh, effective? Right. Uh, so, it's a really good question. So this is something that we have like less good data on, and there, there's a few reasons. So we get most of our information from confidential reports to us. The rest of our information comes from media coverage. Now, we do do follow-up um, on every case that's reported to us, whether or not support is requested, just to try and ascertain what the outcome is. We don't always hear, and in cases tracked in the media, media doesn't always report the outcome of the initial case. In um, in the challenges that we saw in 2022, um, as you as you might expect, the actual reconsideration of a title is a time-consuming process. It becomes much more so um, when every avenue to appeal that outcome is pursued because the people who are um, looking to restrict access have uh, a dogmatic faith in the inappropriateness of the material. So they, they just like always push it out. So you know, it might be like a three-stage process for that title. And then when you look at the possibility that at times there are hundreds of titles challenged at an individual institution. So you have to do this times three, times a hundred, you know, times whatever it is, it's like it's really, really protracted. So 2022, like a lot of things that were challenged then, the outcomes are still kind of up in the air. Um, but we we track the data when we have it. Um, public libraries tend to have more success in retaining items, um, but I don't have I don't have like an overall percentage to you. I know in in prior years, there's usually around like 80% that were retained. Um, that's fallen off a little bit recently. Thanks. Thanks, Ray. Ray, you want to take the next question? Yes. Um, thank you for being here, Eric. This is really interesting. And um, you, you mentioned something earlier about um, threats and intimidation and so on of teachers, librarians, school board members, and, and um, does, is there evidence that intimidation like that works? I mean, I, I almost wouldn't blame a teacher that is almost under siege in just overwhelming ugliness to remove a title from a reading list just to keep the crazies from the door. Um, it, it's really a terrible place to be, as I understand it. Do you, do you have any feel for that? Does that work? That's a great question, Ray. So <laughs> do, do threats and intimidation work? Unfortunately, yes. Um, so we see this in a few different ways. Um, one, we see a lot of kind of preemptive action. So like fear on the part of a school or library administration um, removing materials before they're even challenged just out of fear of potential controversy. Um, we also see this in terms of um, prohibitions on selecting new materials in certain categories. 
or that have appeared on certain lists. And we see this in attrition in the profession and on library boards. So I, every, every week when I am doing my job in providing challenge support and um, talking with, with librarians facing censorship issues, I hear from librarians that I've supported who have resigned their positions. I hear from, uh, I hear about people who've lost their jobs for opposing censorship. And I've also heard from, like when I was at the Association of College and Research Libraries conference and talking to other um, professionals in the library and information science field that people actually applying to do this work has also diminished. So yeah, I mean, libraries used to be a great gig. Like you, you you get to like do it all, like just talk to people about what they love, like share pursuits of you know any any intellectual passion that you might have or any kind of geekdom. And um, yeah, now now if you work in a library, you're called a groomer or a pedophile. Um, people are accused of being like being child pornographers in cases simply because they have books with gay characters on the shelf. And yeah, that's not it's not something anyone wants. So yeah, unfortunately, the the tactics are offensive, um, but also effective. And and I should say there there have also been cases where there have been indictments against people for engaging in these acts when they've actually gone over the line in, into um, yeah in the territory of making terroristic threats or of actual defamation. But defamation is like really hard to prove. Well, thank you for that answer. I was afraid that's what you would say, um, but I guess that's the world we're living in today. Um, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Ray, I think you've been here long enough that we don't hold you accountable for Texas either. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I never bring it up anymore. I'm, I'm from New Jersey. Right. I, I won't tell. Uh, Donna, uh, Donna, do you want to take the next question here? Yes, it's, a, it's kind of a statement. My uh, grandson is uh, 15, and last year he goes to uh, kind of an optional school here in Anchorage. It's a junior high high school. And last year he took a class, and it was about banned books. And each of the students in the class read one of the banned, book, banned books and then gave a report about it. And they had, you know, discussions in the classroom. And I thought that was great. And I was glad that he was part of that. However, the teacher, the principal, the school in general got all kinds of hate mail and threats. And I mean, it was, you know, I don't know. It wasn't from parents in that school, but somehow the word got out about that class. And so all around Anchorage and the Valley, um, I was surprised about the amount of negative hate mail and uh, texts and social media threatening the principal and the teacher that taught the class. I mean, it just, it, it really was an eye opener for me because I didn't, I guess I didn't know how strong uh, these organizations that are, you know, threatening 
um, how strong they really are. I mean, it was terrible. Yeah, yeah, there like uh, a couple things that I just want to highlight there. One, like when when I was uh, when I was in the K twelve, we called those classes honor and Navy English, like the classes where we read banned books. Um, but yeah, like the other thing that you said that's like really really important to recognize is a lot of the pressure is being applied from outside of the district or outside of the library's legal service area, especially in terms of uh, social media tactics. Um, like we've seen emails and phone calls from like sometimes across the country to libraries. Yeah. So um, it, it seems like we're we're winding winding up with our time here, and, and I wanted to just focus maybe on one thing. A lot of these things we can agree on, or at least we have sort of ready responses. But I think one thing that's problematic for a lot of people is um, you mentioned early on that one of the principles is that libraries should be available to patrons of any type and all ages, and everybody gets to make their choice. Um, and so, of course, a lot of people are going to say, "But how does a nine-year-old or a 12-year-old make that choice, and, and should they be this free to do that given the entire collection of library? Uh, what, what's, how, do you, how do you help library boards and local communities and think through that question of uh, making material as a matter of principle available to patrons of all ages, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, aversion to restricting things into age groups uh, or otherwise, and you know, the role of parents in this whole process? Yeah, so so one another policy that that libraries often have is the the unattended minors policy. Um, but you know, so so part of this is just that that parents are responsible for um, for their minor children, and of course they can guide the reading interests of their minor children. Um, I personally think that it is the most epic of parenting fails if you want to discourage your child from reading books like that is just awful and it's also a missed opportunity to have a conversation on complex issues where you know you could explain your own views to the child on you know social issues that they are certain to encounter outside of your home um, through any possible means like um, down down the street from my house there is a uh, a black transgender like support center like and it's my kiddo's bus stop is right there <laughs> it's like if if you if you are opposed to like education around social justice or lgbtqia rights i mean your kid just like can't have any public exposure right because they're going to meet these issues face to face and if you if you are a responsible parent or you are a parent who just wants to instill your own values in the child, you should be having conversations around all of these things. Now, in terms of where developmentally appropriate materials are shelved, you know, usually a nine-year-old will be going to the children's section of the library. Uh, they're they're arranged different ways. Like the the one that I worked in tended to kind of like shift things. Um, there were all different shelving areas, basically, kind of you you know as you as you progress in in reading expertise and acumen and like interests, like you just kind of move through the children's section. Um, but yeah, it's parents get to guide their children's reading and they get to have these conversations and they get to have them however they want. 
but they don't, you know, <laughs> children will see things, they will experience things in the world. Um, you can't, you can't stop that from happening. Thanks, I, um, oh, yeah, I think and, this is, go ahead. Oh yeah, and like, you know, Robert's comment in the chat, it's like, yeah. you can, you can make those decisions for your own child. You can say, hey, you know, we're, we're not checking out any books, um, you know, with, with rainbows on the cover. Um, but you can't make that decision for another family or another child. You know, that's, that is your parenting choice. That is your child's choice. And the library is there for everyone. Thanks. I was just, for those of you who weren't looking at the chat, I was just, uh, Eric is referring to Bob Bacon's uh, too big for a bumper sticker, but just right for a chat comment. Parents are responsible for what their children are exposed, what their children are exposed to, not what other people's children are exposed to. So um, I'm going to um, uh, just, uh, so people can get down, we're, we're also practicing as we get back in the building of, of ending uh, more or less at, the, at our appointed time. And, uh, and also in, as a courtesy to Eric, who is uh, in the middle, middle of his afternoon on East Coast time. I hope you've got a good day there. So I want to remind people that next uh, Sunday, our uh, speaker, the third Sunday of the month. So we'll be back in the building um, in person as well as on Zoom to welcome the two co-chairs of the Alaska House of Representatives uh, Freshman Caucus, Andrew Gray, um, Democrat, and Republican Representative Justin Ruffridge. And then the following Sunday, um, uh, Heather Flynn will be hosting the municipal ombudsman, Daryl Hess, who's been pretty busy lately. Um, and then on July 2nd, we'll be back in the building with Scott Kendall. So, uh, Eric, um, can't hand this to you. Uh, I guess I could do some fancy thing where I could put it over into the screen next to you. But uh, this is our coveted Cobalt Cup of Conversation. Uh, and we will, the Alliance from the uh, Unitarian Fellowship will have one of these headed your way uh, by mail. Um, thank you to thank you very much for, <clears throat> for joining us this morning. Uh, it's been a really illuminating and, and uh, useful inf information for us this morning, but also good to know that you're doing that work uh, week in, week out. And so when you're in person, you can hear this much better. But uh, and, I, and since you commented on Bill's sloth, that I will just comment on your, uh, your video, uh, the, way you're, the way you present in the Zoom box here. And I just worried a little bit that that's the sort of Damocles uh, over your head here. So that is a um, larger than life-sized origami crane. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I, I see that. Uh, so we, we will kind of officially uh, wrap up here. But uh, I know Bill, uh, you sound like you you had a quick follow up. Maybe um, if 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 Eric has time, we'll do that, and then we'll um, uh, we'll get off and let people get on with their days and down to the building if they're headed that way. Uh, if 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 you're you're not rushing out to go and and enjoy Pittsburgh, um, I. I remember reading, uh, um, and, and it was somewhere during my college career that it became obvious that the early English translations of Plato made Socrates and, and his, his fellows basically seem very Christian. Um, 
but you know, more modern translations, uh, you know, make it much more obvious that uh, the love relationships that they had were primarily between the the older men and the younger boys, and women were like, well, you know, you should have a wife to have your children, but that's not the person you're going to love. Um, and so the issue of translators that will translate a book to make it more acceptable to the culture that their, their target audience has. And I, and I, I know uh, years ago when Disney produced um, uh, Frozen, one of the neat things about YouTube was that they had all the different singers singing like 25 of the different languages. And what was neat was uh, if you listened to them, what you discovered was that the different cultures changed the song so that it wasn't so uh, liberating, uh, you know, for young girls, you know, but instead they changed the, the whole uh, um, uh, issue, basically, depending on, and of course, some cultures never even allowed the movie at all. So I'm, I'm, wondering if, if there's a topic there to discuss uh you know and how how work is is translated from one culture to another yeah i mean a couple of issues there uh so uh, another example of that is like richard burton's um translation of 1001 nights like that was kind of the the first western exposure to really core <laughs> Middle Eastern, North African stories that changed storytelling like for the world, um, but through like a very particular kind of very, you should always say British slant, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, translation absolutely can change things. And um, where, <laughs> who is responsible for that? And, you know, if they may have they may have an overt agenda. They may just have like unrecognized biases that factor into that. But yeah, I mean, a work in translation should always be recognized as transformed from the original and kind of taken with uh, a grain or two of salt. Um, kind of touching on another thing there um, in terms of like women's rights and reproductive rights. It's certainly another thread that we've seen. Um, like a, a lot of materials have been targeted for having a feminist stance or for simply mentioning that abortion is like that that it exists. Um, started seeing that in Texas, but that's that's really spread. So there's yeah, a lot of that, not just internationally, but now also at home. We we still have in English the expression platonic relationship, which resulted from that early English interpretation of, of their relationships, because Apparently, no sex is involved. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Marilyn and, and Eric, I know you should feel free to, to, to jump off. Uh, but if you, if you want to take one more quick, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take Marilyn and then wrap up here. Yeah, th thank you, John. Um, thank you, Eric, so much for bringing this up. Um, you know, I don't expect to change some people's minds quickly, but I do remind them that um, there is proof that animals are gay. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you see that, 
And uh, I don't know whether you know a whole lot more about that, but to me, it's just a normal thing. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It is. It is a normal thing, and it is normal even beyond the boundaries of humanity. So, Entango makes three, which is like one of the most frequently challenged picture books, um, and it has been for a while. It was about like it's a nonfiction story, two male penguins who had a sexual relationship, who raised uh, an an egg, and then like the chick together. That's what that story is about, um, and it's just about like. The, the children's book is just about like, hey, these, these two penguin dudes like raising a baby together, um, but was was attacked as, as being seen to, um, I guess, make, make such a practice uh, normal or acceptable in the eyes of children, which remains today somehow still offensive to some. Uh, so yeah, like we see that a lot, um, and we've seen this in, there have been other works challenged along this line, I can't remember the name of it, but there's one about, um, it's like, it's like, um, ducks and like 50 other homosexual animals or something like that. That's not the title, but the title's like pretty close to that. Um, that's another one that we've seen challenged, um, and yeah, like, portrayals of even like seahorses, like seahorse dads who like carry the young around and raise them. Like that has been challenged um, just like in terms of um, books that are taught in science classrooms in grade school. So yeah, just like the, the concept that homosexuality is real is viewed as a threat. To some, and um, you know, to kind of close on, on, on a paraphrase, um, if your worldview is so tenuous that a book threatens it, the problem is not the book. Aha, good one. <laughs> and Eric, <laughs> what other ridiculously silly question is in on your screen? There's a pink pointed thing that keeps vacillating from the left to the right. What is that? Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, very creative. Good. Thanks a lot for today. Yeah. Eric, thank you. Uh, it, it's clear from all the various things that you've been describing that you've gone into a field with uh, that probably has job security. Um, sounds like there's <laughs> going to be lots of these issues around for, for ages. So uh, might be good to check back in with you uh, in, a, in, a, in a year or so and see where things are. But thank you so much for joining us today. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, thanks for the conversation and the fellowship, folks. Thank you. All right, we'll see everyone uh, next week, either at the building or uh, on, on Zoom. Thanks. <laughs>